This is the Sooner Sports Podcast. Your all-access pass to Sooner Sports. The Sooner Sports Podcast is presented by Allstate. Are you in good hands? And by Riverwind Resort. Riverwind Resort, the place to be. Now, here's your host, Chris Plank. All right, welcome into the Sooner Sports Podcast on this pre-Bedlam edition. Isn't it wild to think that we're heading into the final regular season game of the college football season? Now, obviously, for those of us here at the Sooner Sports Podcast, our season doesn't end when the football season is over. We'll continue to keep you up to date on everything in the world of college basketball, Gymnastic squad getting ready to get rolling. Softball, baseball right around the corner. So there's always tons to get into. But here on the tailgate, it's kind of a almost a, a moment to where you reminisce because it was almost it almost feels like it was just yesterday when we sat down here and we're counting down to Houston and the trip to play down at the uh, home of the Texans against the Houston Cougars and then preparing for the big home schedule and then obviously getting fired up about the start of the Big 12 season. And boom, here we are. The season is wrapping up. Now, again, the bowl layout for Oklahoma seems to be it seems to be pretty simple. It looks like Oklahoma is either going to play in the Sugar Bowl as the Big 12 champion or in the Alamo Bowl against a representative of the Pac-12. There still is an outside shot at the four-team playoff, but again, that seemed to take a bit of a, uh, a bit of a shot after the way things played out last week on the precursor to Championship Saturday. So, as always, we appreciate you downloading the podcast. We always want to look for your reaction. You can hit us up on Twitter, at OU on the Air, at Sooner Sports TV. And, of course, leave a review on iTunes if that is how you consume this podcast. On the show today, we are going all in on Bedlam, and we are going all in on award season. Jessica Cootie, who has been a regular, she was on with us last week on our Thanksgiving Day edition of the podcast. If you missed that, you can go back and listen in. Good perspective from Jess on what the women's and men's basketball team is getting prepared for in the 2016-2017 season. But today, Jess joins us to take us behind the scenes on her feature with Dee Dee Westbrook. Now, in the podcast world, a 16-minute interview is fine. In fact, we got a couple of them here today. In the TV world, you really got to cut and splice and find a way to get that story to about four or five minutes. So Jess put together an incredible look at Baker Mayfield and then sat down with Dee Dee Westbrook. Now, you can see all these pieces at Soonersports.tv, but you'll miss the entire interview. That's why we're here today. So Jess has been kind enough to give us the entire 16-minute sit-down with Dee Dee Westbrook. He is a finalist for the Bolitnikoff Award. There are many who consider him to be on his way to New York as a finalist for the Heisman Trophy. A lot of that could hinge on how things go Saturday against Bedlam. And he is he is really a guy who has started to embrace his role. And it's unfortunate that we only you know get a couple more games with him in a Sooner uniform. But as a team spokesperson, it's kind of a guy that meets with the media at the Monday press conference, as a guy that you, know, you want to learn more about. So D.D. Westbrook... Jessica Cootie had a really good sit-down interview. So what you won't see on the TV piece, you'll hear here on the Sooner Sports Podcast. And we'll go behind enemy lines. Toby Rowland goes one-on-one with the voice of the Cowboys, Dave Hunziker. I go one-on-one with the sideline analyst for the Oklahoma State Cowboys, Robert Allen. So a lot of perspective 
on Oklahoma State as we roll on here on the Sooner Sports Podcast. So what do you say? Let's get rolling. It's Oklahoma. It's Oklahoma State. The chance for a Big 12 championship decided on the Sooners' home field this Saturday. Let's kick it off with a little Didi. Hand off, flea flicker, back to Mayfield, flicks it deep down the middle, D.D. Westbrook is there, he's got it, and he's going to score a touchdown! Oh, mama, what a play! He is without a doubt one of the most explosive receivers in college football this eight-game stretch after finally, finally healing from his hamstring injury. 1,200 yards, 15 touchdowns since the start of Big 12 play. Don't forget of what he's done on special teams as well, too. 16 total touchdowns over his last eight games or 12 more than he had in the first 16 games of his career. D.D. Westbrook has been sensational. D.D. Westbrook has been electric. And D.D. Westbrook sat down with Jessica Cootie to give us some perspective on this amazing run he's had over the last eight games. Didi, you were about to play your last game on Owen Field. The two years, I feel like, has gone by really fast. What does it feel like for you knowing that you're going to run out onto that field for the final time? Uh, it's crazy uh, for me, you know, uh, just playing at my junior college a few years ago, and then I'm here at the University of Oklahoma and about to play my last game here. It's crazy for me, and uh, my years of college is almost finally up. I'm happy for that, but I'm not ready to leave the University of Oklahoma. Describe what the past year has been like for you. Um, it's been crazy and very humbling for me. Um, this past year has been filled with a lot of excitement. You know, at the beginning of the year, it wasn't going too well. But now since we've been on a streak that we've been on, it's pretty impressive. And we're, we're all loving life right now. As a football player, you obviously always have to have confidence. But could you have imagined that you would have had the year that you had back in June, July, August? Um, no, ma'am. Uh, I knew that I was a talented player, you know, and I knew I had the potential to be great. But to go on a streak or a run that I've been going on here lately, it's, it's crazy. And like said, the stats said, and no guy has ever really done it. So I'm the first. Yeah, we, I talked to you a little bit, you know, when you started breaking all the records and you were very very humbled by it, very kind of overwhelmed by it. Now that, you know, the, the records kind of just keep coming and the guys that you've always looked up to in your career, uh, what does it mean to you in two years to be on the record books, kind of overtaking some of those names that you've always looked up to? It means a lot to me. You know, it means more to me than anything. But of course, whenever I'm out on the field, you know, I don't think about records or anything of that nature. I just love to play the game of football, you know, and ever since I was young, I, I just feel myself in being in love with the game. I love the game and love to play it. So when I'm out there, that, that's it. That's all I want to do is just play the game. And of course, whatever comes with it, comes with it. You seem like you're free out there. Like it's just, you're, you are having fun. Why does this game bring you so much joy? Um, well, let me just take you back to a year ago. You know, um, when I first came here, you know, uh, being out there, uh, everything was just overwhelming to me. I've never played in front of 90,000 people before in my life. You know, the most I've probably ever played in front of was about 500, you know, and then to come here and every, every seat be filled up, you know, each and every week, it was just an overwhelming situation for me. And then to come back this year after having that year of experience under my belt, you know, uh, I feel more relaxed, more calm, and I feel like I can just go out there and just play the game that I love so much. What do you think was the reason for, I mean, because teammates from day one said you were a 
big time playmaker in practice. They saw it all the time. But now that we're seeing it each and every week, every single play, it seems like that you make, what's been the difference? Why have you been able to make those plays this year as opposed to a year ago? Uh, my confidence level, you know, it's all a mentality thing. You know, once you have set in your head that you're, you're the best and, and no one can stop you, then at the end of the day, that's what it is. You can't be stopped. Was there a moment when that clicked that uh, you can recall? Yes, it was uh, the moment I got healthy and I knew there was there wasn't going to be any setbacks from that point. Uh, yeah, just that challenge of overcoming that, knowing that it was going to set you back. I mean, how much did that motivate you kind of moving forward, knowing that like, you know, it held you back so much at the beginning, but kind of overcoming that was is it kind of just like, OK, let's just go do this. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, me playing the position that I play, which is receiver, you know, all the times what routes you're, you're starting and stopping. And in order to do that successfully, you must have a great working hamstrings. And at the time, I, I didn't have a great working hamstring. And so uh, it held me back. But TCU game, when I felt that there, was, there wasn't any tightness or anything of that nature in, in my legs, I felt as if I could run. Then at that point, I was like, let's play football. Coach Stoops always, you know, raves about your route running. Has that always been something that you've been good at or has it been something you've had to work at? Uh, that's been something I have to work at. Um, you know, growing up, I went to a small high school and then the junior college, I've never had an official receivers coach. You know, uh, in high school, my, my receiver coach played D-line in high school and went over to my junior college. My offensive coordinator was my receiver coach and he played quarterback at the University of Houston. And so coming here to OU with Coach Simmons, that's my first official receivers coach. And uh, I couldn't stress, well, Sterling couldn't stress enough about how important route running was. And so pretty much got behind him and did whatever it was that he does best at route running and equipped that into my own game. And here I am now. What was that? Was it watching film? Was it making, you know, I guess more of an effort during practice, all of the above? What, what was it that kind of really took you to that next level as far as route running goes? Just pretty much watching him, you know, watching how low he stayed in and out of his breaks, coming in after practice and before practice, getting the extra work with him. And uh, that was pretty much it, you know, just pretty much taking the time out of my day just to get better at specifically running routes. You've talked a lot about kind of what Sterling has, you know, how he's kind of been a, somebody that you've looked up to and kind of modeled your game after. What does Sterling mean to you and your football career and what you're doing today? Uh, he has a lot to do with what I'm doing today. Um, for example, we come in contact out there every game, regardless if it's a good game, a bad game, a win or a loss, you know, uh, we come in contact and he tell me the different things that I should have done differently, you know, during certain certain plays or how I should have blocked on a run play, you know, and it's just a brotherhood and he look after me just as well as I look up to him, you know, and he want to see me do great things. and. Like said, I was taken under his wing, and that was one of the reasons I came here, because I knew he was a great receiver. And uh, with some of the great things that he'd do, that I was going to be able to look after and, you know, equipped into my own game. And that's pretty much. Did you have a receiver growing up that you looked up to that you kind of would emulate when you were playing in the backyard? Uh, yes, ma'am. Tavon Austin. It's my favorite receiver. Yeah? Yes, ma'am. I think that came out last week. So yeah. that was your whole life that's been someone that you've looked up yes. to? Yeah? Yes. What is it about him? Uh, just, just his elusiveness, um, his, his way, his way of creating plays. Whenever there's really much of nothing of a play to be made, just, just 
I mean, his determination to score every time he touched the ball, and that's exactly how I want to be. You talked about how much fun that this game is for you, but obviously as kind of the stories have come out recently, you walked away from it because it wasn't, it was more stress for you. Um, what changed in that where you, you kind of found that love for the game again when you had lost it before? Uh, the thing was, um, I was a lot younger, you know, and uh, I've been playing football since I was six, you know, six, seven years old, you know, and uh, I had been playing my whole life. I had never gotten a break. You know, I was always in off season or every time there was an off season, I was never able to just go home and spend that quality time with my family or my children, you know, and watch them grow older like a father should. And going over into Bland and that off season and me not being around them, you know, and, and my kid's mother, you know, texting me like, Didi, this is hard. I have to work. No one want to watch the kids. And I felt at that point I wasn't being a good dad by not being there for my children. And so I, I gave everything up that I had going for myself to go home and make sure that my children were safe and everything was okay with them. And um, that's pretty much what caused me to love the game more. I had to take a step away from it. It made me miss it a lot more, you know, and uh, of course, like my, my son, he's, he's a football player. Like he, he wants to play football, you know, and, and at that point, I was like, I don't really want to work like a nine to five job, you know, at this point of my life. Like I need to get back into school. You know, I need to make money for my children, you know, in order for them to grow up and be the children, you know, that they are or, you know, look up to somebody as far as like me. So I need to like do something with my life. And so that's what made me change everything and go back into school and work my tail off to, to break the school records at Bland and then also come here and compete to the best of my abilities here to break some of the school records and hopefully the National Football League is next. How were you able to find that balance? Because you took a step away from it, then you came back to it. How did you find the balance of being okay with, you know, again, wanting to provide with football, but then also still being the, the dad that you want to be and being there? I had to get my family more involved. It's, it's all about your support system. And at the time, I, I, had a, I had a football support group, but not necessarily a family support group, you know. And so I just had to get my mom more involved, you know, my aunts, my uncles, and tell them, like, football is really what I want to do, and that's really how I want to provide for my family, you know. And, and they sat me down, and they were like, Didi, are you sure this is what you want to do? And we all agreed upon it, and ever since then, you know, uh, my, my mom has been there, my aunts, my uncles, you know, my, my close relatives has been there for me to help me get through the situations in a tough time whenever my children don't have me to come home to. Has there still been times that it's been difficult, a challenge to balance both? Oh, yes, ma'am, most definitely, you know, but uh, through FaceTime and me being five hours away, I mean, that's that's pretty far, but you know, uh, during the weekends, my children come up, and sometimes they get the chance to go to the game if it's not so cold or too loud. But yeah. So you said your son is a football player. What's his name? Vincent. Vincent. What yes. does he think about dad out there scoring all those touchdowns? He want to score touchdowns. That's all. That's all he do. You know, uh, every time I go to the house, he want me to get down on my knees and chase him around the living room so that he can score touchdowns. And so he got all these different celebration dances that he do. Is that in the back of your mind when you're out there too, knowing that he's watching? Oh yes, most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. 
I mean, what does it mean to you knowing that, that he's watching every move that you're making and, and looking up to what you're doing? I mean, it, mean, it means a lot to me, you know, and uh, if I can tell him anything uh, with him growing up, I would just tell him not rush the process and it'll come when it comes. You know, uh, my thing was I, I never rushed the process. I knew at some point in time it'll come. You know, for example, I was the same player last year, but instead I had to, I had to trust the process and my time will come. And just when it comes, you must be able to embrace it. And that's the same thing I'll tell him as he grows older. You know, now that you're getting all of this attention, you're on all kinds of, you're, you're finalists for all kinds of major awards, you know, your, your name's really getting out there now. What do you hope people know, number one, about D.D. Westbrook, you know, as, as they're learning more about your story? My family and my children come first. Like, I mean, I wouldn't be in this situation if it wasn't for God, but right after that, my family and my children are first. You, you know, when we talked a little bit about you had to take a step away from it and, you know, it was, it was not as fun anymore and, and all of that. Looking back on that moment now, would you have ever thought that you, your name would have been a Bolitnikoff finalist, you know, in, in Heisman talks and in, in some of the talks with the greatest football players in college football right now, would you have ever thought that, that this would come? No, ma'am. Never in a million years. You know, you, you always have your, your, your close cousin. And my close cousin was Steven Townsend. He's two years older than me. My whole life, he's been my quarterback and I've been his receiver. And uh, he always told me when we'll be out in the backyard, you know, tossing the ball up and down or up around, he'd be like, Didi, like, you're, you're the best receiver, like, ever. You know, and I used to be like, whatever. I used to think he was blowing smoke because, of course, he's my cousin. We grew up together since we were knee-high to grasshoppers. But, I mean, now to see everything that he said is pretty much coming true and that I'm one of the best, if not the best, in the country is, is crazy and I'm still overwhelmed by it. Of course, I'm, I'm going to continue to be overwhelmed until I'm holding the trophy. OU has never had a Bolitnikoff winner, um, you know, and here you are one of the front runners to do that. And, and you still have, obviously, a little ways to go before you can, can do that. But, you know, again, you talk about breaking the barriers that some of the, the greats here that have done and, and that has not been done. How much would that mean to you to bring that back to the University of Oklahoma? It will mean more to me than almost anything in the world. You know, uh, for me to actually be the first, considering the fact that OU's been great for way before I was born, you know, and, and for me to come here and set my own trim by being the first to win a Bolidnikoff and that's being the best receiver ever. And you have what, Mark Clayton, Kenny Steele, Sterling Shepard, uh, Ryan Royals, like all those great guys. And, and for me to be the only one out of all those guys that win the Bolitnikoff, it would be crazy and very humbling for me. When was the moment that you believed you were um, to the level that everyone else has always seen you at? I still don't believe it. I still don't. You know, at, at, at times, like, I, I go out there and I feel like I got to work even more hard than before, you know, just, just to stay low and, and make, the, make the correct breaks in and out of my cuts. You know, uh, like at, at this point, like I still don't believe it. You know, you can tell me how great I am, but I mean, I'm just a, a, a kid from a small town, which is Cameron that just loved the game of football. So I got to ask you about, you know, when you score a touchdown, which you've scored, scored several of them this season, you always have something that you do, and obviously you don't ever get a penalty for it, but um, it's always different. Is that something that, 
that plan going into it? Is it always spontaneous? I mean, we saw the why not. We've seen, you know, the the other day when you kind of wiped it off. What what is is it planned or is it just completely spontaneous? Uh, some of it, some of it is planned, uh, and some of it is not. Uh, after I score, the first thing I do is try to go inside Coach Stoops' head, and I try not to get a penalty to hurt the team. But uh, I want to dance. Like, I want to <laughs> dance. I want to show Baker that I can dance also. But, um, yeah, those, uh, I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty much just unexpected, but not enough to get a flat. So where do they come from? Uh, family members or some of the guys on the team, you know, uh, just different things like that. Is there anything better for you than when you score one of those big touchdowns? There's nothing better. <laughs> nothing better. Um, and then just knowing, you know, two years here, junior college transfer, but the way that this coaching staff has trusted you and, and you know, put, put you in some big time situations, what would you say to them as, you know, your career as a Sooner kind of is, is coming to a close? Thank you. I just want to thank them for everything that they've done for me. And I mean, for, for all we know, like none of this was expected. I'm sure like everybody was surprised. Me too, still am. You know, uh, considering the fact when I committed here, uh, there was a whole different coaching staff and, and those guys leaving and, and the coaching staff here believing in me just as well as the other coaching staff did, you know, it's just all unexpected. And it took a turn and this was the right turn. You know, you find guys that you just you can't help but be fans of. And I am a huge fan of D.D. Westbrook and the way that he's handled his business this year. And to see the plight, to see the, the climb that he's had, I would encourage everybody to take a few minutes to log on to Soonersports.tv, watch Jess's feature that she put together on D.D., and obviously root for this guy to continue to have success beyond just Bedlam, beyond just the bowl game, into the NFL. Cowboys show a four-man front. Baker's got it. Hand off P. Ryan over the left side. He's got room. 35-40. Down the sidelines. 50. 45-40. It's a sprint. 30. 25. 20. 15. 10-5. It's a touchdown! P. Ryan. Well, it was a one-sided affair in Bedlam last season as the Sooners kept pouring it on and pouring it on and pouring it on. Snap to Baker. That's a handoff. Mixon pinned in. Spins out. Runs far side. Watch out. 35. Gets a block from Mayfield. He's in the clear. It's a sprint. 35-20. They're not going to get him. Into the end zone. Joe Mixon on a reverse skate. He takes it 66 yards to Pater. So what's different about this year's version of the Oklahoma State Cowboys? Toby Rowland had a chance to sit down with Dave Hunziker, the voice of the Cowboys, and get some perspective on this 2016 campaign in Stillwater. It's been eventful and dramatic. At one time, I compared it to having two teenage daughters. The more drama in our season than there was trying to raise two teenage girls. Of course, now one's 20, so she's not a teenager anymore. But it's been interesting, man, just like it has been for you in just a different yeah. way. I mean, it's. Well, we've both had eventful years, and you know what's amazing? You know, and really, it's interesting. Both teams have kind of battled through a lot of stuff, and here they sit. I mean, you know, really, to me, it's pretty remarkable that both teams have endured, you know, some of the things they've had to go through and, and still be at this point. That's pretty good work on the head coach's part, as far as I can see. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. If you look back to when uh, the Sooners were 1-2 and, and the Cowboys, I think, were 2-2 two and two and uh, 
and to say, uh, you know, the week after Thanksgiving they're going to be playing for the uh, Big 12 championship and neither one's going to lose another game, you'd be hard-pressed to uh, get a buyer on, on that sell. But here we are, seven in a row for the Cowboys. In your mind, why? why? What have they done to put this together and go on this impressive win streak? You know, it's, and I can't put a finger on exactly what happened, but something happened from a chemistry standpoint. Um, and I, I don't know exactly what happened. But the dynamics of the team changed. And, and maybe it was all the bad stuff that happened that, that brought these guys together. I don't know that it was bad before, but, it, but, but there definitely was a change. Then defensively, you know, from a more tangible standpoint, they quit giving up big plays. Uh, they they kind of changed how they played things defensively and played a little softer in the secondary, and, and, and the big plays have, have vanished, really, for the past two months, which has been huge because they're just not giving up the big play touchdown. The continued improvement of, of Mason Rudolph in terms of decision-making and his willingness to check down and, and sort of understand that it's most important to take what the defense gives you and, and that you don't have to play for a big play all the time, that's been big. And in the running games, consistent improvement, which goes hand-in-hand with the offensive line's uh, continued growth. I mean, they've got better and better as the year's gone along. Justice Hill is having one of the best freshman seasons in the country, and Chris Carson, since he came back from injury against Kansas, looked like a guy possessed. He's he's run the last several games since coming back from injury like the guy we saw in camp in, in preseason when I think we all felt like, okay, this guy's guy's mad they brought in Barry J. Sanders and everybody keeps talking about how bad he is and, you know he he he, he played he played with a mad streak it seemed in preseason and then it tapered off for some reason and he wasn't the same and now he's back to that so those are some things that last point is the biggest to me uh, because I think for the first half of this season you didn't have to respect the Oklahoma State run game you know you could mm-hmm. they were pretty one-dimensional and now you absolutely do, and you gave credit there to the offensive line and a couple of the backs, but to have a balanced attack, boy, that makes James Washington and McCleskey and all those other receivers that much more dangerous. You know, and it's funny, it's 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 a you know, it's kinda like the, the mouse that gets on the wheel chasing the cheese, he never catches it. And when I say that, James Washington was becoming such a big play threat. I mean, this is a guy that has three touchdown catches of more than 80 yards that teams were realizing we are going to have to take some sort of action to stop him. And in most cases, it was some kind of safety help one way or the other, which means that's one less person in the box to stop the run. Last year's Oklahoma State team, they could have put extra help on James Washington. I don't think it would have mattered. They still couldn't run the ball. Once teams started doing that, it became absolutely critical that Oklahoma State be able to rush football consistently, and they were able to do it, you know, to, to the extent that now I think they've had people in a little bit of a quandary as of late, although Gary Patterson obviously didn't feel much of a quandary because he decided he was really going to overplay the pass and dare the Cowboys to, to run, and, and the Cowboys did to one of the best rushing efforts in recent Oklahoma State history. And so so it's it's kind of funny how that works. It's 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 kind of a pick-your-poison thing in terms of, of what you want to stop. I still think people generally have felt like, hey, the first thing we have to do is we've got to make sure that 
we limit James Washington and the big play threat down the field and to some extent Jalen McCleskey. And keep in mind their best red zone receiver and another deep threat, Marcel Aitman, was injured just before the start of preseason camp and hasn't played it down and won't play it down. So they had to sort of retool things offensively in the red zone. But, you know, now you you do have people in a bit of a quandary because you just hung 334 yards on the ground on TCU. Although uh, they were probably – uh, they probably dared the Cowboys to run the ball as much as any team that they faced from a schematic standpoint, and they did. If OSU is going to win Saturday, where do you feel like is the area they can really take advantage of Oklahoma, and vice versa? What's the biggest concern for you for the Cowboys? You know, I think it's going to be interesting to see how Oklahoma looks at Oklahoma State as they prepare for Oklahoma State's offense. And I think it is truly, and this sounds goofy to say this, it is truly a matter of whatever Oklahoma gives you, take it and exploit it. Whether And knowing Mike Stoops, you know, you're, you're going to guess that he's going to want to get the run stopped and dare the Cowboys to throw it. And, uh, and, and it'd be interesting to see if the, if the long passes are available. But basically what it comes down to is, you know, Oklahoma's defense, I know they've had a lot of injuries and, at times, they've had some issues with the deep ball. But whatever they decide they're going to give you, because probably they'll have to hedge the bet one way or the other, run or pass. Take it and don't be impatient. Don't feel like you've got to force the other area. If they're giving you the run, run it. If they're giving you the pass, throw it. Don't feel like you have to force the other area. Just take what they give you. They've done a good job of that recently. I worry about stopping Oklahoma on the ground. You know, two really, really good backs. Uh, an offensive line that, uh, you know, while, you know, young in class in some areas, I mean, guys, you've got a couple of guys that are sophomores that have started, you know, for two years, even started as freshmen, and and then has done a really nice job. And, of course, Baker Mayfield is in and of itself is a concern, but I, I really worry about stopping the run game because once Oklahoma starts running it, then it opens up everything in the pass game, and that's when Mayfield and Westbrook can, can kind of put that dagger in you if you don't watch it. So, You'd better be able to keep things reasonable uh, from OU's standpoint in terms of what they're doing rushing the football because then the floodgates open if you don't. I'm fascinated to get your perspective on this Central Michigan thing because I, I've never seen anything like it. You've got you know opposing head coaches, but yeah, nobody has. Bob Stoops is coming out and saying, "Ah, they, they you know they should only have one loss." Baker Mayfield yesterday said nah, they should only have one loss. Everybody universally agrees, maybe outside of Central Michigan, that Oklahoma State should should only have one loss from the moment that happened and it became a realization that an injustice had been done there going forward. How have you handled it? How has Mike Gundy handled it? How has the The most important people first? And, you know, I think Mike's initial thought was, you know, gosh, there's got to be a way to remedy this and let's try to figure out how to remedy it. And, And of course there was not. And from his standpoint, I think it, you know, he's consistently said that Oklahoma State's a one-loss team. I don't think he, you know, I don't think he dwelled on it with his team. I think they're real, he realized, hey, there has to be a point where we move past it and get ready for Pittsburgh next week. It was a really good team. That was a really good game. The Cowboys played against them in Stillwater and ended up pulling out that game at the end. So, you know, and I, and I think, you know, players, I'm sure they talk about it on occasion behind closed doors, but it hasn't really – you know, you don't really hear him talking about it much, even casually, and you don't really hear him, 
you know, you don't really hear secondhand that they talk about it much on campus. They just kind of do what they do. They have so much on their plate every day between class, you know, getting in their weight room work and then going to practice and an extra film study if they choose to do so. They just don't have too much time to, to be sitting around pondering life. It's just not enough idle time to do it. So, and I think it, it kind of brought this team together. For me, I think it's the angriest I've ever been after a sporting event. <laughs> and it wasn't that it happened, Toby. It was that we had no remedy for it and that really we have no one to blame but ourselves. And when I say that is, in major college football, and the Power Five in particular, we've all gone on this cash and team grab, and we, we've gone on, of course, Big 12 hasn't. Everybody's you know, grabbing up teams, grabbing up money. Conferences want to really be all-powerful, and they don't really want to be held accountable by anybody else. We've created that system. Well, in doing so, we've neglected really any oversight from a competition standpoint in football. There is no oversight. I mean, our situation was a great example of that. There was no oversight. Certainly, I was upset with the officials, but I was more upset that not only did we not have a remedy, we did this to ourselves. That's what was frustrating. I just like, are you, you know, we have nobody to blame for this but ourselves. We did this to ourselves. You know, grab, grab, grab teams and money and teams and money, teams and money. When you start doing that, at some point, the integrity of the competition goes in the tank. And this, in its own remote way, is an example of that. Finally, Wednesday, I'm not going to lie to you. As at practice Wednesday of that week, I was still just like a raging bull, which I think, as you know, is kind of unlike me. <laughs> yeah, and, you're, uh, pretty, you're pretty hot-headed, I know, Dave. So. Yeah, I know. I finally just said, I said, I got to go to confession after practice. And Father Ken was having confession. I had to just put this on. It. I just had to say, hey. A lot of bad, a lot of bad words, a lot of bad stuff. He got me straightened out as he always does. But uh, yeah, I'll, con- I'll confess, I had to go to confession over that one because it just. I, and again, I wasn't initially. I was upset at the officials. So how could you? How could you miss this? Of course, not like I knew. So you know, and it's not like I don't screw up. But I was more angry at the fact that we have no remedy, and we did that to ourselves. I mean, in my opinion, by creating a system where the conferences just basically do whatever the heck they want and. Uh, so Coach Holder made a comment to me, Toby, and I'm being long-winded. I apologize. But 2008, we were getting on the plane at Texas, and uh, Cowboys were undefeated and lost that day to the Longhorns. We were talking about conference championship games, and he said, anytime you stage competitions and the outcomes matter a lot, but your real motivation for doing so is money, it's a terrible idea and it has long-term and bad consequences. Now, there you go. You know, one side note, one thing to keep an eye on is going to be special teams plays, explosive plays, if you will. The last four Bedlams have really turned on a special teams play. Go back to 2012. Jalen Saunders had the 81-yard punt return for a touchdown. Oklahoma came back and won that game on the walk-off run by Brendan Clay. There was Jalen Saunders' 64-yard punt return for a touchdown in Stillwater. Sooners also faked the field goal for the touchdown in 2013 and won the game. There's the 2014 game in which Tyree Kill had the 94-yard punt return for a touchdown. Oklahoma State won. And let's not forget Alex Ross with his 90-yard kickoff return to the OSU four-yard line, set up an easy Sooner touchdown. Oklahoma rolled from there. We talk so much about turnovers. Oklahoma has been plus seven the last three weeks. Oklahoma State's been one of the best all season long at forcing turnovers. But keep an eye on special teams' plays big special teams plays potentially being the difference in Saturday's game.
With that said, let's talk about the running attack, shall we? I caught up with Oklahoma State sideline reporter. He's one of the best in the biz, Robert Allen, to ask him a very simple question. This OSU running game, is it something that has happened schematically that's kind of triggered the improvement over the last three weeks? Or has it been more about two running backs that have really found their way? I think it's kind of a storm that has kind of fit together. Um, The offensive line has been a a long work in progress. Uh, You had a lot of young guys. Uh, You had uh, transfers like Saleco. Uh, walk on at center like Lundblade. You had the injury with Williams where Michael Wilson plugged back in, and that, that caused an adjustment. You got a steady guy like Crabtree at tackle that I think is pretty, really pretty good. And then the freshman inserted the redshirt freshman this year in, in uh, Keys. Keys gave that offensive line a little bit of a, uh, I always call it defensive lineman playing offensive line, uh, a little. Um, uh, mean attitude. You know, defensive linemen are typically meaner. Offensive linemen are more protector types that you want your daughter to marry. Um, <laughs> and so Marcus Keyes gave it a, a little bit of a mean spirit, and I think that helped. Then you had, obviously, the rest of the offense with, you know, the passing game has to play a part in it. Uh, teams have shown a lot more respect lately to James Washington. TCU had their safeties back at 12 and 15, and that's going to help the run game. Uh, I think Justice Hill was identified the minute he got on campus with his explosion, his ability. Uh, And then I think the final part of the puzzle was Carson coming back from the injury, the broken wrist early in the year, realizing that if he was going to live out his dream of getting a chance to play in the NFL, badly wants to help his family. They've got some financial situation they had a, a, a you know his childhood house burned down and and uh and when he came back i think he was hungrier and i think he learned a few things from a maturity standpoint uh in fact you know if you let me go off chris chris carson's one of those guys i'm really proud of um you know this because you're like i am you get close to these kids you know Amen. more about them than Amen. the fact what their number is and what they do and I didn't like Chris Carson. When he first got here, you know, he was a one-and-done guy. Hey, look at me. I'm going to be a big stud running back. And he's matured. And that maturity has played out in football. So he's always been a great pass catcher. That's why I think he'll make it in the NFL. Is in the modern-day NFL, a guy that can pass block, protect, catch the ball out of the backfield, is a very but the thing he hadn't shown was the ability to run. I think a little bit of desperation, a little bit of grown up maturity, uh, coming back, he's been the last the last piece to the puzzle of having a run game and it's all fit together and, and made OSU more of a balanced team, which Mike Gundy and Mike Yurcich badly wanted. I love it. I, I love hearing that kind of stuff, Robert. You don't see that kind of stuff in the TV analysis you get. You only get that from the sideline guys, and Robert Allen is there our you guest. Go. <laughs> hey. By the way, I'll, I'll make this comment. I, I listen to your guys' broadcast, and and uh, and I'm a, I'm a little jealous. They haven't opened my mic. My mic's open to Dave and John. They hear me throughout the game, but as far as just opening, I don't know if they trust me as much <laughs> as they trust you, you and Teddy, but you guys – you guys have a good thing going, and, and, and that's that's pretty cool because I do think even though the better view is up in the box, 
there's a lot of analysis and a lot of flavor to the game that gets captured down there where where we are. Yeah, and you know you can uh, I I would say this I'm lucky that I have a guy like Ted down there to help me, but. You know, Robert, I think we all keep tabs on everyone when we're on the road. I always envy how, uh, and I've told Toby this a lot, how you always have a story about the officials. You seem to know everything about the officials. And then from a football and X and O's perspective, you get it. You know what's going on. You don't have anyone needing to explain anything to you. So with that said, uh, I, I know we yeah. brought it up from a uh, an actual maybe schematic perspective, but has anything changed with what Mike Yursich has done and how he's called the game or from an X and O perspective? Or as Bob Stoops likes to say, have we just seen better execution of the Oklahoma State plan? Oh, I, I think Mike is always changing. Uh, I'll be honest. When, I think when, when he got here, I think Mike was sometimes trying to fit the square peg in the round hole. By that, I mean... He, he had in his mind a picture of what he wanted the offense to be able to do. And while we all like the picture, and the picture's perfect, offenses and football teams aren't. Some offenses can do what you want them to do. Some have to do what they do. And I think that's where Mike Gersich has come the farthest in, in understanding his players ever, you know, more than ever what they're best at doing, what they like to do. I think that's been a real big of the part of the relationship with him and Mason. Um, he's got to make Mason better, and he's got to make Mason better doing some things that Mason probably isn't as comfortable doing. But he also needs to listen to Mason and let Mason tell him, look, I can do this really well. In a pinch, we probably should go to these things. And I think their relationship – has come a long way. I think that's been a big part of the offense. It's been fun to follow Mason Rudolph's development, uh, Robert. You see it firsthand. It seemed as if, and, and again, maybe it goes back to that trust and that relationship between he and Yursich. Uh, but we just finished up wrapping, uh, taping our assistant coaches show, The Coach's Corner, and I, I get a chance to do it with Teddy, and Teddy said, plain and simple, Mason Rudolph's the best quarterback we're going to see this year. When did he take that step this year? When, when did you see him find that other level? You know, I, I th and I think he's still evolving. I don't think he's anywhere close to where he's going to eventually be. But I, I think the biggest thing with Mason is, um, you know, the Central Michigan game, he struggled. He, he was not very accurate. When he gets off his accuracy, it's generally high. He'll throw the passes. And, boy, receivers don't like passes thrown high. That's, <laughs> not, that's not their favorite proposition. Um I would go back and count throws, which ones were accurate and which ones weren't. Probably the one I remember the most, because this is where I think he grew up. The first three quarters against Iowa State, 14 of his passes, and that was 14 out of like 26 in the first three quarters, were too high or off to the side, just, just weren't completable. Um, in the fourth quarter, he had eight passes, and they were all exactly on the mark. Uh, when a quarterback can rescue himself on a bad day, and that's really what he did, to me, that, that's a major step. So Mason's to the point now, against TCU, he wasn't real accurate, but he was accurate on throws he needed to be accurate on. 
So he's able to rescue himself. He's able to fix himself, kind of be your own quarterback whisperer. Um, and I think that's major. The other thing that's good is, and this is where his relationship with Mike Yersich comes in, and even Mike Gundy, who steps in. And, and I think Marcus Arroyo is part of it as well, the running backs coach, because he's a former quarterback and he gets it. Um, they've all helped Mason become better at taking what the defense is going to give you, whether it's switching run or pass at the line of scrimmage, whether it's what receiver is open, what area of the field is open. You hear one of the things we're hearing more and more that I don't think fans got to hear much back in the past is do they play their coverage with the middle open or the middle closed? That's That language has gotten out of the coach's office and the meeting room worn out of the fans. And Mason's really good at, at studying and knowing the middle of the field's open or the middle of the field is closed. So it's allowed him to make better decisions. I think physically being his own quarterback fixer and then mentally taking what, what's there, what's easy, those are the two areas where he's become so much better. It's been fun. I, I can't say enough good things about him. Now, we've focused a lot on offense, and uh, obviously we haven't touched upon maybe one of the best athletes uh, in the Big 12 in James Washington. Robert, was this a guy, and not, again, curious to kind of get your take on this not someone who had the five stars next to his name coming in or coming from the south lake carols or anywhere like that what has his progression been like to watch and how impressed have you been with the way that he's kind of become one of the more dominant receivers in the big 12 well physically he's always been there i mean he was there from day one kind of like justice hill justice hill was physically at running back there from day one uh so, you know, I mean, you, you always saw, you know, the, the, the A, the work ethic, B, the, the explosion, the speed. Uh, he's gotten stronger, and that's helped him uh, in the weight room. But uh, his, his advancement has been just in learning how to run routes better. And I, I will say this. I mean, we all like to brag on the coaches <laughs> that we work with. Um, you know, Lincoln Riley, I'm, I know for you guys, and, and you know, of course, I know Kale pretty well and, you know, so forth. I know Biedenbaugh gets a lot of credit for, you know, putting the offensive lines together. But I will, I will speak out for Casey Dunn. Casey Dunn, the Cowboys wide receivers coach. And, and, again, I think Washington's the flagship, but I think people recognize between McCleskey and Lacey and Hayes and, and Seals, a lot of those guys contribute. And I'm going to give Casey Dunn a lot of credit. He's a very good teacher of running routes. He is meticulous about, uh, you know, having your hands in the right place, uh, addressing the ball when it gets to you, uh, hanging on to it. They use a lot of the jugs machine. Uh, you know, if they have a bad day catching the ball, you can count on Tuesday and Wednesday. The receivers will be staying late afterwards and doing extra work. So, uh, I think in the way of route running and, and, and just being a good receiver and blocking, Casey Dunn is, is really a heck of an assistant coach for, for Mike Gundy. 
Let's talk about the defensive side of the football. Uh, Robert Allen is our guest here on the Sooner Sports Podcast. And obviously, when you talk to every single coach, they identify one guy, and that's Vincent Taylor. Five and a half sacks for a defensive tackle doesn't happen very often. Uh, Robert, first team all Big 12 from the midseason poll that was out there and four blocked kicks. This guy seems like he can just do about everything out there on the field. Again, very athletic, which is something that, that I think Mike Gundy and his staff look, look at a lot in recruiting. Um, I mean, he's for, for a big heavy. Now, he can move, and anybody that's seen those, uh, those returns this year where, I mean, he's pitching the ball like a wishbone quarterback, that's, that's, not, uh, you know, that's not by accident. It's not you know, something that he just lucked into. <laughs> he's kind of got that ability. So uh, um, you combine that with the intense desire – He's another guy like Chris Carson. He's a Hurricane Katrina uh, refugee uh, from there to, you know, from New Orleans to San Antonio. And then, so, I mean, he, you know, he understands hard times and understands the only way to, to get past hard times is hard work. So he's willing to put that in and um, combine that with the athletic ability and the toughness. Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of people talk about NFL prospects and, and I, I don't, I don't, I think Mason's really good, but I, I don't think he's necessarily ready. He's a true junior, uh, and didn't get much of a freshman year. And I think there's still a lot of things he can learn and get better at to cement himself for the next level. James Washington's the same way, but Vincent Taylor might be a guy that's pretty close. And he's another guy like Chris Carson, where uh, you know it's not just the fame and glory of the NFL. He's a guy that wants to help his family, and I always appreciate that uh, a lot more. So if the Cowboys lose one to the league early, my my bet would be on, on Vincent. And he could still come back and, and get better, but he might be close to being ready. Hey, Robert, uh, one more quick question on the defense before I wrap up with asking you about OU. Is it fair to say Chad Whitener is kind of the leader, though, of this D as the Mike linebacker? Is he pretty much the guy responsible for making sure the calls are in and everything is lined up correctly? When he's out there, but I think Jordan Stearns does that well. I think Devontae Averett has learned how to do that when Chad's been hurt lately. Uh, so I think there are a few other guys that can do it. But, but yeah, I think when Chad's out there, he is really good at being a coach on the field and, and making sure the, the guys are in the right spot. Is it looking good for him to play this weekend? Yeah, I think uh, with the open week, he and Jordan Burton were the, the two defensive players that were struggling a little bit, uh, you know, health-wise, just beat up. It's, they're not necessarily injuries. They just, you know, as you see it, like I do, you know, uh, over the course of the season, guys just take so many hits. Both those guys have had a bunch of stingers. And so that's really been the biggest issue, but... Mike Gandy was really soft uh, the last, you know, bye week and even this week in practice. They're not doing a lot of banging around, uh, and that's allowing these guys to, to catch up and be healthy. All right, real quick, before I let you run, Robert, what's your thoughts? It's always good to get some uh, some perspective that's not as close to it as we tend to be. So what are your thoughts on Oklahoma as you've studied them and prepared for the Big 12 championship game on Saturday? Yeah, extremely scary offensively. Baker Mayfield is – I like Mike Gundy's analogy last year. He he calls him, you know, William Wallace, Braveheart. Uh, he's the guy that 
that, I mean, you know, you talked about Chad Whitener being the leader. I mean, you know, Baker Mayfield's attitude makes guys play better. Uh, he's got that warrior thing going that, that the guys around him love. Uh, then you throw the running backs, P. Ryan Mixon, you throw D.D. Yeah, I knew D.D. Westbrook when he was in junior college because my son had to coach against him. And he said, Dad, this cat is – he's different. He's the best I've ever seen. And uh, he torched that league up, and that's a tough league junior college-wise. So uh, I knew what he was when, when OU got him and wasn't real excited when they did. Um yeah, but defensively, they've had their struggles. And, and uh, I think a lot of people expect this game to be a shootout. I think it may come down to which defense can can get the most stops. And I'm sure that's something during the open week and, and into this week that, you know, they're trying to scheme it up so that they can be the one to get the most stops. And I think that's what Glenn Spencer's been doing. Other thing is special teams. Yeah. My God, special teams have impacted this darn series and, and it scares you to death that you don't want to give up a return. OSU is really sound in the kick game, and and uh, OU is really, really good in the return game. So uh, you got to be careful with that too, Chris. Are you ready now? <laughs> Let's kick this game off right now. Eh, we'll wait till 11.30 a.m. on Saturday morning. Don't forget, we'll have complete coverage for you on the Sooner Radio Network. Our pregame show hits the air at 9.30 a.m. if – you are out of the area, out of the reach of one of our great radio affiliates. You can always download the TuneIn Radio app and listen to the OU radio broadcast for absolutely free. And don't forget, our friends over at Sooner Sports TV will have their pregame show that will hit the air at 10 a.m., so a little bit earlier than you would typically get, or a little bit extended, I guess I should say, for the Sooner Tailgate show with Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, and we'll have complete coverage for you right here on the Sooner Sports Podcast, recapping everything next week. Well, it's the season finale. Who would have thought the year would roll by so quickly? Everyone have a great Bedlam-filled weekend. We'll be back to recap everything next week right here on the Sooner Sports Podcast. Until then, enjoy game day, and Boomer Sooner, everybody. This has been the Sooner Sports Podcast. Make sure to get all the latest episodes online right now at Soonersports.tv slash podcast. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at OU on the air.